Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am your host, Mark Fraser. I am joined once again, as ever, by me, by him. How you doing, Mark? I'm okay, Chris. How you doing? Uh, it's been a, it's been a time yet, eh? Aye, it's been a time yet. Hi, Mark. Mark. <laughs> yes, Chris. Wait a minute. What's, what's that noise? <laughs> Hang on. Wait, wait, what's that? What's that? There's something moving. <laughs> hey, who, go, who goes there? <laughs> All right. Oh, my God. Oh, hi there. How you doing? <laughs> Look at the knees. I can see a man's legs. That can only be one guy. It can only be one person in West Central Scotland. Declare yourself. It's the 16th of November, which to me, I still believe is autumn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hi. It's uh, Weaver. Dave. Big Dave. The, the, the D. Jesus Christ, Power Rangers Assemble. How are you tripped yeah. in? It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while. It's been quite a while. Yeah. It's been quite a while. Welcome back, David. So, Thanks. Sorely missed. As I was saying, I didn't realise how much I missed the hairy thighs of a man until you came straight <laughs> in in short shorts in the middle of Scottish winter. It's got to be done. Yeah. Well. It can only be done by Dave. There you go. Uh, it is lovely to see you Thanks You've been up to anything Apparently according to Mark You were learning how to do ninjutsu mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You were hunting in Alaska Yep That was one you uh, Auditioned for James Bond Auditioned for James Bond how'd, Yep How'd that go? Uh, I came third <laughs> <laughs> I don't care who got it But who was second? Uh, Victoria Wood <laughs> <laughs> See the thing is Oh god it's been a while since I was put on the spot here the, the, <laughs> My, my patter magnet's all wonky it, That is a really strange kind of Rorschach test For somebody when you say to them Who, who did you lose out the James Bond yeah, part no, to totally. the, the first name is Victoria Wood <laughs> So I mean not only will that mean nothing To most people listening to the show Outside of the UK It probably means nothing to most people listening to the show yeah. Inside the UK uh, She's also dead <laughs> <laughs> hey <laughs> she's still got it um so that's that's a pity but you know you'll you'll find something don't worry talking about finding something mark you need a job <laughs> oh yes i do <laughs> currently currently unemployed as a recording fucking november is a bitch of a month yeah, it's a bitch of a month uh yeah it's been quite a time uh thanks for giving us a week off last week we badly needed it uh, first time in four years, kind of. I mean, I know we did a we did a re-release once, but we were actually recording that week, so we weren't yeah. mm-hmm. actually off that week. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a technical issue that caused that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, a snafu. Uh, yeah, but we're back in style with a mixtape, and the mixtapes are, generally speaking, my favourite episodes. I don't know about you guys. Uh, I have a lot of fun with them, and this one. My favourite episodes are just when you. Talk about an album that me and Mark don't give a shit about. <laughs> I'm just listening to you for 40 minutes. Because <laughs> I just get to relax. Uh, well, you brought this one to the table, really. I mean, we all kind of agreed on it, but it was you that first brought it up. Um, and, I mean, did we decide on a title? Are we just going to call it the Pitchfork mixtape? Uh, yeah, maybe. Or what about Pitchfuck? Bitchfork? <laughs> I don't know. Some sort of pun on Shitfuck. Pit- yeah, shitfuck. It used to be called the Pitchfork Effect many years ago, but I don't think that's so much relevant anymore. But people no. understand what that means, I don't know. Okay, Pitchfork Effect mixtape. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's going to be small fonts on the little avatar, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Dave, uh, tell us what this is. Well, did it come after that article that they released? But I think we've been talking about it for a yeah, while. it's come up a few times. Well, it's interesting because we had discussed it and then we did uh, an episode on the sound, which hopefully people have heard with Ferruccio. And Ferruccio, coincidentally, highlighted the problems that that band faced mm. uh, in the 80s that they couldn't seem to get the sort of critical mass of... of press behind them for any number of reasons. I mean, the fact that they maybe weren't quite as charismatic or but there seemed to be an animosity that developed between them and the press and it it got worse and worse. You know, the more they didn't get covered, the more they they got kind of like short-tempered and Mm -hmm. unfriendly. And ultimately, I think actually the frustration led to the suicide of the singer, the front man. Um, He just seemed like he just was never really cut out for it, but definitely Mm -hmm. that acrimony exacerbated that. And before Uh, that, we did the episode about my vitriol, which is like the complete opposite of that, right? Where the the press really made the band. They were really the kingmakers at the time for mm -hmm. making this band a huge thing who Mm -hmm. were 
who literally did vanish into obscurity like not long afterwards mm-hmm. and then broke up because yeah. they were just they couldn't deal with the pressure. So that's a good word, kingmaker. I think another phrase that will be useful is gatekeeper. Mm. Uh, those are probably going to come back quite a few times. So what really sort of we're going to orient this around is the fact that Pitchfork were involved in a sort of campaign to uh, a revisionist history exercise where they went through a series of albums that they had previously slated and had uh, since passed. Or not necessarily. They they rescored them but some of them they took down a lot. Oh, of did they? Yeah, right, yeah, okay. yeah. So, mm-hmm. well, sorry, the ones that we were talking about were the ones that they'd slated, and mm-hmm. uh, you know there was a sort of like revisionism going on. And, oh, right, okay, this hasn't aged that well, so we're we're, we're going to revise it. Um, and yeah, we'll go through a little list of those. As you say, I think we'll also indulge uh, <laughs> ourselves by having a pop at some of the albums that they have hugely lauded praise on that mm-hmm. almost certainly didn't deserve that level of praise. Maybe um, single a few of those out uh, but the key is at the very end what we did was we went through a list an extensive list of the worst ever reviewed Pitchfork albums and we each chose one of those and we are going to make a case for why our absolutely slated Pitchfork album is actually good is actually really good uh, and what we'll do just now is this is going to be a two-parter let's just put that out there because we've got a little bit of background to do here but the second part of this show is going to be three of us going toe to toe on those records mm-hmm. David what is your record and what did it get <laughs> uh, well I mean I had a few options but what I've gone for is Tool Lateralis Which got 1.9 out of 10 It's a belter at school <laughs> 1.9, that's, they're making a statement there Yeah, they, really are. they are literally making a statement Yeah, exactly yeah. Uh, Mark? Yeah, I've gone for uh, Futures by Jimmy World Which got a 3 out of 10 Which is right in the cusp of where we put the cut off, right? Yeah, you mm. know we were like, yeah, you know, above three, they're not really making as much of a statement. But yeah. they were the one; they were one of the only publications to give it a poor review. Mm. Uh, I have mm. taken, I think, the most obscure of the bunch. I've gone for the Catherine Wheel, not Catherine Wheel, the Catherine Wheel, and an album called Wishville. And even though I didn't write it down, I think from memory that was it 1.8? Uh, yeah. I think it yeah, may think have so. been the lowest reviewed of the three. Uh, we'll go into these in great detail, but that's going to be the second part of the show when we start slugging out on those and our opinions on those. Um, before we get there, Mark, a little bit of admin. Yes, we have some things to talk about. So, as you know, every single year we like to get in a room together and get pushed. <laughs> <laughs> and we do that and answer your questions. Sometimes we forget we've answered them. Sometimes we don't... <coughs> Sometimes we think we've answered them and we haven't answered them. Sometimes we forget who we are. Yep. And this year it might not even just be us three. There might be some other people in the room with us. Mm-hmm. You never fucking know. So, yeah, if you've still got a couple of Do weeks left. Do you mean left, Santa? Yes. Of course. <laughs> you just ruined the surprise. Yes. You've got a few days to get your questions into us. So if you've got something funny you want to say, some hot burning topic you would like us to talk about. If you want to talk about Taylor Swift again, we can, given she's just released two albums this year. Yeah, I mean, um, throw, throw a hand grenade into the room if you want. You know, feel free to ask the most provocative trolling question you possibly can. You mm-hmm. know, we're we're thick-skinned. We can deal with it. Yep. Uh, equally, if you don't want to talk about music and you just want to be a total weirdo, uh, you can ask about that as well. And the answer will probably be Salmon. He loves a Salmon t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Pastels of <laughs> any type, really. Any shade. Uh, but yeah, um, you can get 
uh, the opportunity to do that via our Unsung AAA Pass Facebook group, which uh-huh. you can only access via subscription, uh, which is cheap as chips, though, right? Yep, subscription is $2. Um, you can go to patreon.com for slash unsungpod, sign up there, you can see all the, the cool benefits we have available to people. Um, and it's also your last chance to get in on them because we're going to change them in a year for something which is even cooler, Pretty I would argue. sweet. Mm-hmm. Yes. So go to unsungpod.net for slash donate to either go to our Patreon via that link or if you just want to give us a little bit of cash and don't want a, don't want a subscription, you can also do that there via our PayPal tip jar. Um, anything's appreciated, you know. We've had a lot of shit going on recently. We've had to take a week or two off here and there, which we haven't done in four years, really. Um, even the weeks that we release stuff, such as like back, or back episodes or bonus episodes or whatever, we've been recording or researching that week. So this is the first time, I think, uh, Chris and I have ever taken any time off uh, properly, so um, that oh, was Dave. Re- he's he's been out learning martial arts and yeah. fighting with Arctic mammals. Yeah, and, and being James Bond, whittling, whittling. <laughs> Learned how to whittle. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, like you know, it's it's all very well finding twenty odd hours in the week under normal circumstances, but when you know life stuff creeps up on you as it did recently, it is oof, it's it's pretty tough. So it it would re- really be really appreciated uh, if, as a small reward for that, we were able to get some more subscribers. And some more shares. Mm-hmm. Again, just sharing episodes you like is great for us. It keeps them buoyant. It keeps uh, people discovering us. It's, uh, aye, go for it. It's Christmas season. Just give us a gift. Go on. <laughs> Point laboured. Uh, okay, doke. You know, there's something weird, right? Let's get on to this. Mm-hmm. All three of us are in some capacity, and I don't just mean via this podcast, music journalists or ex-music journalists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we might technically be qualified to talk about this, and that doesn't happen often in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's very true. Yeah, this is the most qualified we've been since we reviewed our own high school band. <laughs> since we started talking about hip-hop and uh, Public yeah, yeah. Enemy. <laughs> so, I, I guess we should probably put our cards on the table then. Uh, what are your backgrounds? My background, I actually studied journalism at university, he says, with a sort of slightly aloof <laughs> look in his eye, uh, which was really stupid. <laughs> um, yeah. Really stupid. Uh, it didn't actually... Well, I guess it probably helped me do this a little bit better, but um, it didn't lead to much in the way of work just because I guess I also studied journalism at a time when... Things were changing rapidly, you know, every six months. Things I was learning about, you know, information and citing sources and stuff was becoming obsolete. The internet was arriving. That's going to be a big part of this story. Um, It was a very, very frustrating time to try and learn the subject. And I think ultimately I was just a bit jaded and put off. I did go back into it. ended up working in some arts and music papers, a couple of music blogs in Scotland, doing a couple of bits and bobs myself. Uh, I wrote under a pen name for a while And my only remit was just Write something provocative Which I duly did Um, But I did have some Immersion in it Uh, It never felt entirely natural Uh, And I think We'll probably go into some of the reasons For that Because I guess sometimes I felt a little bit guilty (laughs) If I'm being honest Um, What about you guys? Well it's interesting When I started my blog and events thing detour one thing we didn't want to ever do was reviews Mm -hmm. we basically just wanted to be a cheerleader for local music and if we didn't like a band we just wouldn't put them on Mm. and quite often if we did although we sometimes we even put on bands that we didn't like but it was just there's too much negativity let's just put on fun stuff let other people choose we'll just put the event on so that was always like a distinct decision that we made but i mean I guess over the years I've then ended up been, I've asked, been asked to write a few articles for various blogs and, and magazines and then over the last couple of years I've ended up doing reviews for a British music magazine and it's been interesting seeing kind of how <laughs> the editor works mm-hmm. and how the, the the hype works and seeing what happens um how, yeah. how articles are just like sort of handed out to certain writers yeah exactly based on sometimes what the editor wants from the article yeah so i mean i i don't know if you want if you want me to go into a specific thing that happened recently yeah sure yeah, go for it yeah, yeah um so i won't name the magazine because it is a really good magazine i won't name the editor because he's actually a really nice guy mm-hmm. and i won't name the record but i mean you could just google it and find out <laughs> <laughs> but about a month ago uh 
got the email through that gets you know cc'd all the people that are doing reviews and it's like oh we've got this one this one this one if anybody wants to do this debut mixtape by this really hyped up artist you know give us a shout record comes out on friday it'd be great to get a review done and i knew the artist and i really liked the previous you know stuff that they'd done um so i said yeah i'll do it and i got it um listened to the mixtape and i was like do you know what it, it is actually really good but when i wrote the article or wrote the review i was like i said sometimes there is an artist that comes along that gets editors really mu- like music editors really fucking excited because they tick several boxes like they're young they're british they are like multi-genre and th- they've just got this swell of goodwill mm-hmm. and and hype and all these things and i saw so it was kind of a bit meta. A bit meta. But in the end, I was like, do you know what? This one deserves the hype, to be honest, because it is fucking great and really cool. And it takes all these influences and it works really well. Eight out of ten, right? Mm-hmm. Sent that on the Thursday night. And then the editor came back to me like, I'd say a minute later. I don't think they'd read the review. <laughs> oh, man, thanks very much. That's great. Uh, we'll put that out tomorrow morning. Is it okay if I just bump it up to a nine out of ten? Uh, for impact mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like did you read the bit about music editors having a little wank over this and how hype works mm. <laughs> that is wow so I was the, just like holy like, shit life imitating art that's yeah. So yeah, you know I'd, sorry Mark um, before we even get yeah. to your partner but um, I had a, a similar experience again with an editor a guy who I really like really respect a guy who did great things at an arts paper up here and since mm-hmm. since he left that paper uh, there's, it's a noticeable deterioration it misses his passion for it but we did butt heads in one particular um, matter, which was a famous Seattle band releasing, I think, their second or third greatest hits compilation of basically the same music. Yep. And me pointing out, this is the second or third compilation by this <laughs> this artist of basically the same music. And I gave it a sort of very mediocre review. Yeah. But in the review, I said, I fucking love this band. This is a great band. Yeah, but the product. Yeah, I was, I was like, but this is clearly a commercial milking, mm-hmm. you know, venture. Mm-hmm. I said, you don't need it. If you already have the earlier one, and frankly, the earlier one is a slightly better range of songs. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That was my point. It wasn't like any sort of attempt to do a takedown or, you know, anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the magazine really wanted an interview. With yeah, the yeah, of course. And uh, it was probably the only time things got a wee bit heated because I was like, look, you, you're asking me to write honestly, and that's mm-hmm. honest. Yeah. And it wasn't as though. He wasn't being dishonest. He was saying, "You love the bands. Why are you giving them a a really quite a shitty?" I think it was like two out of five. And I was like, "I, I do love the band, but I don't love this record because it's it's unnecessary." It's pointless, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it led to that, and that was a bit of friction. And that's a very mild example of that. I mean, we're we're not. I mean, sure, there are journalists out there going, "Oh, for fuck's sake, I've had way worse than that." Absolutely, but that was mm. enough. I mean, it was exactly that kind of stuff that stopped me trying to go any further down that line and work for any of the even more sort of mainstream press. Yeah, uh, because there's so much of that. There's so much of being expected to, to toe the line. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I mean, I'd, I'd, unlike you, I'm quite happy to be critical. You may have noticed that sometimes mm. in the last it has been noticed <laughs> four years. Um, I think, generally speaking, though. I tended to, as you said, not cover stuff that I thought was punching down. Mm-hmm. So if I was punching up, I didn't mind that. It was like, you know, if it was a band or an artist that was riding that wave, perhaps to the detriment of other artists who were being eclipsed by it, and I felt it was unwanted or mm-hmm. maybe just disproportionate, I would maybe be quite comfortable being the dissenting voice, and I, I definitely fell foul of a few... I, I attacked a few sacred cows. I remember attacking the band Om... I had no idea the sort of feverish fucking <laughs> fandom that exists around that band. Uh, yeah, that 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 didn't go particularly well. But Mark, I, f- I first met you in your capacity as a music journalist. But what else did you do? That's uh, correct. Um, I've only ever done it for myself, to be honest. Um, I started my own music website back in two thousand seven. Um, somehow I managed to end up working with loads of different writers at the same time, essentially making me the editor, even mm. though I was also contributing, uh, running the website, doing all the admin, that kind of thing. It's just pre 
this is probably MySpace days, so it was like pre-social media. You yeah, know? yeah. So it was before Facebook and Instagram were really a thing. But the pitchfork effect was definitely an effect at that point. You mm-hmm. know, I started the website with a friend of mine just because we were both writers and we both wanted to write about stuff we loved. You know, mm-hmm. um, he ended up leaving, and then my cousin came on board, and my cousin ended up parlaying that website into a promotions company, which he did for a bit out of Aberdeen. And then he left and moved to London, and he now started. He started his own promotions company, which he now runs quite successfully. But for me, um, we did that website for a bit. When the promotions thing was working out well from him, I'd lost kind of passion for it, and then I kind of binned it. And then I started doing the Curator podcast, which is a podcast I met you on, Chris, mm-hmm. and it's how I met you as well, Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was me coming back into journalism, but from a different angle. I'd never interviewed anyone before, um, and I just thought, you know, I really like these kinds of podcasts. I'll go away and do it. And I really enjoyed it, and then I noticed more and more people started doing it, so I stopped doing that as well because I was like, you know, I don't want to be, I don't, I, I you want to be ahead of the curve, yeah, not, not on the curve, yeah. And then it turns out that, and I'll round a bit way, we've all managed to come back out of journalism at roughly the same time mm-hmm. <laughs> with us. Yeah, one of the nice things about doing it in this capacity, though, is the this, the control you get. Yeah, but with that control comes poverty. <laughs> <laughs> that's also true. Yeah, that's true. I just I didn't it's that different. like distinct balance, and you see it with like the smaller arts magazines or music magazines that might have like three staff, mm-hmm. and I can see that you know the one that I write for, you know, it's not got a huge full time staff they need those social media numbers and that's why they want impact and you can see oh what's the difference between an eight and a nine oh it might be a couple of thousand retweets and you can see the compromise because they're like oh we need to pay for the magazine to get printed this month Mm. but then it's just such an easy slope to then fall into that's um, why bad reviews don't exist anymore either really you know they're just not a thing anymore because there's no money in it you know? There is there is a crazy stat. I mean, I think the average we'll get into this, but the average review in Pitchfork is seven or something like that. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Right, this is a thing that I can, I I, I think I'm pretty skilled at, and it's zero to a hundred. You're one in a hundred chance of getting it right, but I can go to the Pitchfork review section and it just has the album cover and the band name and the artist, <laughs> and I can point at it, and I I always get between two decimal spaces of what I think the score will be. But that's because it's always between 6.8 and 7.4. So I'm like, I reckon that's going to be 7.3. Oh, it's 7.1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah fair play. I've never heard of it. But yeah, like... Well, I mean, any system that claims to be accurate that has an average that is a full fucking two points up from the median. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, clearly there's 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 some kind of bias there. But, okay, what what is Pitchfork? Um, a couple of basic things about this. Pitchfork... Are we going to talk about what is Pitchfork or are we going to talk about it, what is music criticism? Oh, no, we'll, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll work backwards. <laughs> we could go meta. Yeah, I, I just want to contextualise it a wee bit. But Pitchfork yeah. began as a small music blog, which was originally actually called Turntable in late 1995. And by May 1996, so really only about six or seven months later, it had started publishing daily and rebranded as Pitchfork. Uh, it is now uh, the sort of undoubted internet reigning music blog site. Um, I'm a little bit confused as uh, as to the, the, the interchangeability of like blog versus webzine and things like that. You know, there, there, there seems to be, I'm not sure what the correct parlance is for that or if there is a significant I, I, I Yeah, I don't know. I think a blog always used to be more of a personal That's what sort I thought, of diary it's update. It's like a mega blog, isn't it? Uh, so. I guess I would say that a blog is more singularly focused on one thing, whereas like a webzine will have like and all other kinds of content. Which so surely it's a webzine then. But I would say I would probably say it as a webzine. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't call Pitchfork a blog. Yeah. yeah, well, I would say Pitchfork has a blog on. Like a blog is more like a diary mm-hmm. to me. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, whatever they are, uh, some of their competition currently includes the likes of Consequence of Sound, which is right up there in terms of numbers. Uh, Metal Injection, which is a massive following. Mm, huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, NPR in the states, which NPR obviously is very diversified, does loads of different things. Big umbrella, and then kind of quite a bit down the list. You start getting some familiar faces, the likes of NME, which is one of the old kind of print media folk that is kind of metamorphosed quite a bit to to, to hang on in there. Uh, moved very much towards the centre with its coverage and its focus uh, mm-hmm. for, certainly from a comparison to where it started um, and Mark you kind of said this phrase but uh, journalists have written extensively about the so-called pitchfork effect which was kind of nicely summed up in the New York Times by uh, a writer called I think it's Karamanika in 2010 as uh, the power to pluck a band from obscurity and thrust it into the indie consciousness 
and to push it out just as quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that is the pitchfork effect. It is, which is interesting because do they define when that became a reality? Because to me, that's like between two thousand and five, two thousand and ten. Yeah, they don't. But we are going to define it tonight in a world. But what's interesting <laughs> is the pitchfork effect was more prevalent in the UK press. As the NME effect Absolutely Between 2001 and 2005 mm-hmm. Or maybe 2008 Foreshadowing basically All my notes Yeah I was, I, was, I was going to say one other, Another thing To kind of know about Pitchfork Is they're owned by Condé Nast Right Which is just This massive niche Quote unquote Niche publishing house GQ Vogue Wired You know The New Yorker That was They only recently acquired them as well So bringing them Into such a luxurious company Is clearly The, the owners of Condé Nast Going hey look um, we see something these guys are doing which can definitely add to our portfolio of of content. Condé Nast have been going for over 110 years, you know. Yeah, but the, ed- the, thing. the interesting thing is so many of those print publications have got such horrendously like withered revenue mm-hmm. that Pitchfork is probably far bigger than a lot of well, them. So. Wired, the GQ and the New Yorker, like they do so much better online than they do in print now, you know what I mean? Yeah. Wired used to be a really, it still is a great magazine, but they do way more online. I think it's, it's telling to see what, where Pitchfork has come from and now what it is. It's basically now... We, will, we are going to argue, I suppose, that it's always been part of the cultural pantheon of, of Kingmakers, but now more than ever, it is, mm-hmm. it is re- very much revered and up there. Agreed. So, what is music journalism? <laughs> <laughs> what is criticism? What is, yeah. what is language? What, what, yeah. um, what, what, is? what are opinions? So, um, music journalism, I had, had a wee dig about in this, and that, that obviously involves reading Wikipedia, but I did look at things that weren't just Wikipedia. Yeah, um, so, mm-hmm. it, it seems to have its roots in the 1800s, um, right at the turn of the century, when like classical music criticism was a thing. We've actually talked about this in previous episodes. Um it's actually sort of seems to have begun in Germany in earnest. Um, with uh, there's a there's a publication called excuse me here, Allgemeine Musikalische Zeitung from 1798, and there was a publication called Neue Zeitschrift für Musik from 1934 uh, and those are as far as I can tell two of the first major sort of dedicated music uh, I don't know what you call them pamphlets brochures whatever um, as well as in London there was a thing called the Musical Times and Singing Class Circular uh, around about which I think started in 1844 and basically you had uh, initially uh, a whole host of actual musicians writing about music so I would imagine sort of enthusing about stuff they loved maybe being snidey about stuff they didn't like defining high art and low art and the zeitgeist and all these kind of things uh, but from about 1840 onwards it, it seems that the balance shifted and you start to get a wave of professional writers taking over and the, the, the musician writers sort of faded back it, it acquired the momentum um, I think things that are credited for the, the sudden rise of that phenomenon included the influence of the Romantic movement. Um, now, we talked about Eric Satie. who obviously pushed back against the Romantic movement to some extent, and who also pushed back against journalists quite literally Mm -hmm. by getting into fistfights with him uh, when they criticised his work. Uh, The popularisation of, you know, the kind of star status of certain performers, uh, such as, I think, Licht and Paganini are are highlighted as being examples of that at the time, and also just the growth of education, Um, you know, wider literacy, People just forging new paths and 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 the written word and finding new niches within the emerging capitalist framework. Uh, so yeah, it seemed to grow quite organically. Um, now we, we're primarily talking about music criticism in the the modern context. So as regards popular music journalism or rock music journalism, most folks seem to agree that it sort of began around about the kind of superstardom and the cultural zeitgeist of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. That seems to be around about that the time. Uh, in the book Rock Criticism from the Beginning, uh, Ulf Lindbergh and co say that rock criticism uh, was slower to develop in the USA and England. Um, author Bernard 
Gendron writes that a serious rock press and criticism in the United States generally seems to have began about 1966. Uh, the likes of Robert Shelton, who was a folk music critic for the New York Times, started writing really glowingly about the Beatles and Bob Dylan, and it sort of started to become accepted that you could write about pop music and rock music in the, the, the same ways as you used to be able to write about much more highbrow pursuits. Mm-hmm. Um, the Melody Maker over here, which is one of the main publications for a long time, complained in 67 about how newspapers and magazines are continually hammering as in attacking pop music uh, and I think from 1964 Melody Maker had kind of led publications in terms of approaching music and musicians as a subject for serious study rather than merely just as entertainment um, Back in the States, uh, a guy called Paul Williams, who's an 18-year-old student, launched a pop journal, Crawdaddy, with an exclamation mark, in February 1966. That was actually a really, really influential magazine. Mm -hmm. It's it's in an episode of The Simpsons, I believe, Mm. where Homer, you know, one of the flashback episodes where he's a kid, and he's got a pile of Crawdaddies in the corner of his room. Um, It's the first ever magazine to write about Bruce Springsteen. Wow. It it did a sort of profile article on Bruce Springsteen in 1972, I think. There's an issue where Susan Sarandon has her boobs out. (laughs) Yes. I don't know why I know that. (laughs) Homer would definitely add that. Um, The New York Times described it as being uh, the first magazine to take rock and roll seriously. Uh, It stopped publishing actually in 1979, so it was only about for about 13 years. That same year, it's 1966, uh, Richard Goldstein, who who was just recently graduated, uh, debuted the Popeye column in the Village Voice in New York, uh, which uh, that same guy Gendron describes as the first regular column on rock and roll to appear in an established cultural publication. So what you see is kind of on both sides of the Atlantic, around about the same time, there's a prestige that starts to get afforded to writing about popular music. Mm. Um, I think as well, just anecdotally, all of us will be familiar with names like Cameron Crowe, you know, whose work travelling with bands was recounted in Almost Famous, the movie. Um, Lester Bangs, mm-hmm. yeah, I've got a book of his writing behind me. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson, who who wrote sort of tangentially about that that rock and roll culture. I'm sure that there's there's many more we could name, including actually really respected critics and authors at the time. Uh, but these were like pop culture figures who wrote extensively on the culture in and around music, and. You know, subsequently the phenomenon exploded. Like speaking from a British perspective, by the end of the eighties and nineties, you had Vox, Mojo, Q, Uncut, Enemy, Melody Maker, Sounds, Smash Hits, Kerrang, Rock Sound, Metal Hammer, and they were all on the shelves of a fairly typical newsagent. You're not even talking about yeah, even just a supermarket. You yeah, you're not talking about some specialist store. It was like a really, really big industry at that mm-hmm. time. And things kind of started to change because they had so much power and influence. And it, Dave, you kind of hinted at this, the enemy effect, which is clearly the, 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 the precursor to the pitchfork effect. Enemy started very early on to adopt something of a trendsetter role. It, it adopted a tone of voice that mm-hmm. was not as neutral and certainly not as respectful. It, it kind of started to place itself almost as a persona. Oh uh, yeah, definitely. And it, it tried to be sort of cynical and offhand not necessarily ironic though it was more just like cheeky sneering and sne- yeah, yeah yeah sneering so it, it actually there's a few aspects of that magazine that became really kind of notorious uh, their their singles reviews column was just sometimes total junk i mean it it was you could go through maybe a dozen reviews without any mention of the music at all i mm. mean that, that, that was like a feature rather than a bug you know it, it was something they were trying to do was to be so so aloof yeah. that they didn't even bother to mention it. They would talk about their breakfast that day and about feeling sick, as though you were somehow meant to read between the lines yeah. and interpret that it was a bad song. even a, a band from Glasgow actually felt that the wrath of NME very heavily. It was quite later on, maybe 2010, 2011, uh, Cassidy. Oh, yeah. Who famously, I, th- I think they got a zero out of ten review for their mm-hmm. album. And it was just like. Ouch. Yeah. And. One of those guys was going to be Lana Del Rey, though. He probably wasn't <laughs> yeah. paying much attention to anything else. But, um, like, they're the sort of band that NME six months before could easily have given an eight yeah, out of ten and, and so hyped fickle. up. So fickle. And it was all. Yeah, they were so, so fickle. Yeah. There was a guy, remember Johnny Cigarettes? 
yeah. Uh, th- this was like the rise of like the the writer sort of creating their own uh, legend, you know. Like, well, I think they'd all seen celebrity. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, yeah. and they're like, mm-hmm. "Oh man, yeah, let's." They're just getting pissed in fucking Camden and want to be Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, I mean, you you really saw the rise of the takedown piece. Yeah, you know, like the the, the as you say, the zero out of ten review, exactly what we're going to talk about later on the show uh, in the context of Pitchfork. But that was that was happening a long time before that. And you also saw a magazine, for example, that couldn't say enough nice things about Morrissey. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah, yeah, a good yeah. example of something that didn't age particularly yeah. well. They had their favourites. They always had their favourites, and that included genres, because I mean, enemy. Again, it was right at the forefront of the grunge movement when grunge was cool, mm-hmm. you know, and then very quickly dropped it like a hot stone after it wasn't cool. And in fact, yeah. it was kind of that shift in perception that helped to make it really un- uncool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There, there was an inflection point where it, the the acceleration downhill for grunge and genres like it was just catastrophic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Enemy flexed its muscles many times. As did other magazines, they really sort of seized that role as kingmaker and gatekeeper uh, of success for a lot of bands. And they barred the door for a lot of bands for sometimes quite petty reasons, you know, personal reasons, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as professional ones. Um, I always, when I was getting into music journalism, or journalism, but like obviously with one eye on music journalism, I wish I hadn't read, there was a couple of early books by Henry Rollins, and in one of those early books, he went on about music journalism, music criticism, um, at length about the number of failed musicians that were that mm-hmm. worked in music journalism and, you know, described... Well, I don't think he actually used the word parasites, but sort of, like, inferring that. And, and you know what? The thing was, I was like, he's absolutely bang on. Because, I mean, I am, by all measures, something of a failed musician. <laughs> I mean, I am a musician, yeah. but certainly I've never had any sort of, like, critical or commercial success from it. And the ranks of music journalism are filled with people like me. And they're mm-hmm. also, I think, even worse. Because I think there is a certain amount of empathy uh, that exists within failed musicians or just practicing low level musicians within music journalism where they do sort of appreciate the adversity some of them are very bitter some yeah. of them pick petty fights but there's a, also a whole um, sphere of people who just couldn't play but wanted to be invited to the parties yeah. for me when I was involved in music and from a perspective out with music journalism just as a musician and a, a member of the public they were always the most problematic ones yeah. I mean we all played music we know what it's like to play music. We know what it's like to be at the coal face of it. And how but we're not bitter. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, speak for yourself. But I think actually, I was always most wary of the people that never played music. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. because that it was it was sometimes so thirsty how badly they wanted to get invited. Now some mm-hmm. of them were very very sincere and you know just loved music, but there was definitely a fair amount that were willing to say whatever it took to get an invitation yeah. backstage. You know, and that never really sat well with me. That's probably an interesting segue. What what were your experiences from the other side? I mean, albeit I'm sure we've all got fairly limited experiences because we were never in high profile bands. But you know, I certainly got burnt many times. I was very disillusioned with the the, the response of the music press. Mm-hmm. You know, to what I thought, well, certainly in my case, like I thought was oh, this is pretty decent stuff. We're doing we're doing all the right things. We worked really really hard. Certainly, you know, a lot harder than a lot of the bands you can point at, and. You know, the resentment and the feeling of frustration at not being able to break through mm-hmm. was sometimes like really overwhelming. I mean, I remember for one record sending out 200 press packs and not getting a single review. Yeah. For, for what I knew objectively was, whilst maybe not an amazing album, I mean, to get zero out of 250 yeah. was absurd. And it was like, what do we have to do to get noticed? I mean, what, what were you guys' perspectives mm. on that? I mean, I've never been on a band that's sent in and out to press, so, you know, that was never anything that mattered but I, I've got enough pals and bands and I know like a couple of bands that have continued and are doing really well in Glasgow and beyond have either they they just maybe the, the music editor at that point just doesn't get it and therefore that publication just blacklists them and for a music editor to do that that's just like oh I just don't think they're good but for a band that can be crippling because they need mm. that local support. Yeah, if they get a review there, then they might actually get a review in something more national and you know and stuff like that. And I've seen that happen a few times uh, on various different levels, whether it be in something like you know the Skinny or 
NME or like or bands that are like desperately trying to get that Pitchfork review and just never quite get it. Even though bands that are very similar to them and producing stuff that is maybe not as good as them will will get the Pitchfork mm. review, well, like we, for releasing anything that they ever do. That's also said about Adrian Borland, the guy from the Sound. All my problems loom larger than life. I can't swallow another slice. Seems like my shadow. He was very outspoken about how frustrated he was watching the bands around them. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially bands like Echo and the Bunnymen shoot to prominence. I mean, decent band, but no better than the sound. And yet they couldn't break it. They were they were doing much better in places like Italy than they yeah. were at home. I think a great example of that is actually Bush. Like Bush yeah. had a hilariously vivid depiction of, you know, the likes of enemy saying, fuck off. Yeah. You know, sub and fair enough, enemy might have had a point, you know, subpar, you know, grunge wannabes, whatever. But the fact that they were selling millions of records abroad yeah. and couldn't even get a look in, yeah. in the UK shows you, I mean, had they not broken in America, they would have been nothing. They would all have been working in fucking Tesco. Yeah. Never what what I find really interesting from the perspective of this podcast is that we've been doing it for four years and looking at records and the whole point of it is to find albums that were unsung either critically or commercially mm-hmm. and critically that is often the case these are records that were overlooked at the time by the critical press because we're talking about records that are sometimes 20 30 years old and it's just because some fucking music editor just didn't like the look of the album cover and so didn't cover it. And if he'd fucking listened to it, he might have given a seven point, you know, a seven out of ten in a national press, and then the band might have actually, you know, kicked on, kicked on and yeah. made another record and blah blah blah. And like, you know, we've done like what nearly two hundred records now, and how many, you know, mm-hmm. you know, how many careers and creative things came from a lack of just decent. Yeah, objectivity I mean, or subject. Think about yeah. the unfathomable mountain of carcasses of bands. Yeah, um, some of whom would have been very fucking good. And I mean, I could actually probably name half a dozen from Glasgow alone mm-hmm. that never got any support or any real support and withered on the vine and never made it. I mean, that is like that is staggering. And as a music journalist, and I say this, I'm holding my hands up as well. I'm guilty of this. You know, you've been out partying all week and you forget that your fucking deadline is tomorrow. So you throw some bullshit together at the last minute. It, having listened to the first 20 seconds of six of the tracks yeah and you see th- if anybody's written a review before and you go all oh, right well, well if they didn't like it i probably won't like exactly, it exactly exactly and so that is make or break for a lot of these mm-hmm. bands and it's that's i can i can totally sympathize with what henry Rollins says he's like you know they hold people's careers in the balance yeah and they'll wake up with a hangover and throw some shit together and never give it a second thought that's what I mean when I said I had a bit too much shame about the industry to actually pursue it any further. I was like, it contributes to that lack of meritocracy ultimately, even though there's good people pushing so it. Do you it. think the government should fund mm-hmm. a specific should number? Nationalise music journalism. Nationalise music journalism. Just nationalise music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, fund all artists and then fund all the journalists. Uh, that's, uh, actually, that's actually kind of brings together the, 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 this is like a confluence of things which kind of sort of coalesce in my head as to why I I kind of stopped doing music journalism and and even thinking about pursuing it and why any of the bands I've never actually bothered to send stuff away to get reviewed it's because I learned very quickly when I was running a music website that um, you're getting most of your stuff from PR companies Mm -hmm. and in order for bands to get reviewed you need to have money or decent backing from a label to get to that level where you would then be getting a maybe maybe get a like a, a side review and pitchfork like in a fucking like roundup of a month of a week or a month or whatever not a feeling mm-hmm. and you'd be spending so much money in doing that for me it became so I'm platforming a lot of these bands which I've never really seen two of that much but they're getting money thrown at them by somebody mm-hmm. could be their parents could be a record label that just really likes their look could be because they had a hit on MySpace because that's what it was back at the time. And also having to compete in a space with bands that are really... I, I say this knowing bands that are quite like this, personally, that are willing to throw money at things to make things happen. Mm-hmm. And still not really getting much further down the line than I would if I was just sending out reviews and just like hitting up my pals over the country and, and pulling together tours and mm-hmm. and putting together in a DIY sense, you know? Yeah. Um, 
So both of the things in my head are quite inseparable, you know. Do you know what? Do you know what's interesting is that for, I mean, I guess people can still throw money at it and stuff, but there's maybe a slight democratization of this with streaming because instead of throwing money at PR to get it in a review put down in front of you, you can throw money to get the track on a playlist and then it's judged without the critic. It's judged directly by a listener mm-hmm. and they'll like it or they won't like it. That is a really interesting yeah. dynamic. Yeah, it's interesting you use the word democratisation though because this kind of brings us on to the next part of the evolution which is the arrival of the internet. Um, mm. There's a, a writer for the New York Sun. Is the New York Sun not that really terrible one? No, that's the New York Post you're thinking No, but of. I thought the Sun was dodgy. Anyway, okay, sorry New York Sun if you're not the terrible <laughs> one but I've got a sneaking suspicion you could be. Um, in 2006, Martin Edland of that publication criticised the trend saying that while the internet has democratised music criticism it seems it's also spread its penchant for uncritical hype and I think that's an, that's an open goal it's clearly true um, how did they get there? Well, because of cunts like him like, like <laughs> platforming <laughs> bands that are being pushed by record labels by PR companies that are undeserving of the hype well, in the first place so here's, here's something that strikes me it eats I, itself you I, know? Want, I want to talk through a wee bit about that process quickly but then also give a little bit of insight because I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that there'll be people that just, whilst they enjoy music, haven't had those same sort of behind-the-scenes glimpses that we've maybe had, distasteful or otherwise, right? And so kind of want to maybe share my take on it, and I'm sure some people will dispute it, but it's how I see the machinations working. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, I was at university when the internet was kind of sinking its teeth in properly. I mean... 1954, that was <laughs> when the first network came on. Roundabouts, man. Good pass uh, at Alan Turing, eh? <laughs> went to work my penny farthing. Um, but basically every six months, as I said, my, my, my education in journalism was becoming redundant. So search engines, like, I mean, Netscape, you know, mm. then it's gone. Lists of websites, like, like indexes, and then suddenly the search bar became a thing and the indexes disappeared, so, you know, quoting and citing sources and all these kind of things it was so fast moving and at first the print stayed there because the internet was seen as a joke you could in fact you couldn't really academically cite it even mm. if you found a very very good article and so you couldn't use it but then that slowly changed and it acquired the respectability and as the sort of prestige of the internet sources and certainly some of them at least and as some of the real publications moved online it became more and more acceptable to cite the internet it's more more acceptable to take it at face value and the magazines actually started to get a little bit fucking twitchy because they were like, oh shit, this isn't a joke anymore. This isn't the equivalent of a fucking cubicle toilet wall anymore. You know, you, you can actually believe some of the stuff that's written here. And slowly, the the, the 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 reactiveness of the internet, the fact that it was much faster to update, you know, you didn't have to wait in a monthly cycle for a magazine to come out. You could adapt it, you could put stuff out daily, you could more accurately coincide with the release schedules of bands. You know, if somebody died, you could report it, like, straight away. You mm. weren't waiting until the, the mm. next month's edition of, of, of something to come out to talk about it. And that, obviously, I mean, that's the case with the internet on all fronts, sport, news, whatever. But it really, really knocked the, the music journalism world for six. And it, it led to, well, obviously it led to a lot of people moving over to, to online. But it, before that happened to its fullest, it led to a change in the model of the print journalism, right? Because what happened was, as the, this this happened with papers in general, but as the retail revenue decreased for, for print media, and this is still the case, they became more and more reliant on advertising revenue to the point where a lot of products, now, a lot of publications now are entirely reliant on ad, uh, on advertising revenue. Like they, they cannot exist, no matter how good their sales are for any given month, they just can't hope to survive. It's all about the advertising. And the sales are really just a means of propping up the advertising, which is why even a lot of publications moved over to the free model. Look at The List, which used to be a paid-for magazine. NME now. Yeah, Mm NME now, exactly. They had to adapt to that to survive. They became advertising brochures and the music and the content was the means to make you pick it up and look at their adverts so mm-hmm. the music and the content was the vehicle to drive advertising sales and therefore they were much more beholden to advertisers now they were it was a it was a buyer's market now they they were no longer in charge um and that had implications for objectivity for example to give that insight to pull back the curtain a wee bit 
so in, as I said, I, I was encouraged to improve my review of that band because the, the the magazine wanted to interview a member of the band. But it wasn't always that because I, 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 artists fall under the remit of a manager or a label or a PR group or whatever, and they may represent other key artists. And there was a lot of like playing that off against people. So if you wanted to interview the Strokes at the end of X year for their next big album, which was mm-hmm. a big, big scalp for you to have an exclusive on the Strokes, you maybe had to give like three really positive reviews over the course of the year to stay in the good books of that agency. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you were sort of bartering a lot. And, and the the credibility of the writing, just as the credibility of the internet stuff seemed to go up, the credibility of the magazine writing started to drop. And people started to realise, I don't know if I can actually take this at face value anymore. Mm-hmm. If I read a good review of an album, it might just be because effectively it was sort of bought because this magazine needs this company to advertise on their pages or because they need an exclusive to drive their advertising. And so really people lost faith in that medium. And before it completely collapsed, there was a sort of really bleak period where you were still semi-reliant on it, but started to realise that what you were reading was sort of bollocks mm-hmm. um, and that the, the sense of like r- freedom for the writers was really going. That for me was when I jumped out as well. I found it very constricting. Is that the word? Yeah, I think constrictive. Uh, Do you know what? So I know this actually totally echoes other parts of music, uh, and in terms of promotion, uh, very much music festival lineups, especially the more mainstream, but also within any genre, it's run by music agents, mm-hmm. and so a promoter might have a festival, and they're like, right. We want to put on all the bands that we love or all the bands that we know people are going to come and see. And then they say, all right, we want uh, the Chemical Brothers to headline this. And then they go to the agent and the agent goes, you can have the Chemical Brothers, but you also have to take three other artists on our uh, roster. And it'll be like, yeah, but they're all shit. (laughs) No, I'm afraid you still have to take them. Otherwise, you're not getting the Chemical Brothers. Absolutely. And that's why you see that lower down the the, the sort of festival lineups. Mm. Like, what the fuck is this? Like, where did this come from? Yeah, who are they? I've literally never heard of them. And it's because they've been invested in by the same record label or the same agency. Which is, in its own way, a festival manifestation of the phenomenon of the advertorial. Yeah. Which was something that you couldn't quite distinguish between, am I reading a paid-for advert or am I reading an editorial thing? Mm -hmm. And that line started to get very blurred mm-hmm. in a lot of those magazines to the extent where there are magazines out now that are almost exclusively advertorial magazines well, like it, it really sort of coincides with uh, with the rise of streaming as well right because more and more and more like, reviews are becoming irrelevant mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no because they don't it's just not required anymore when was the last time you guys actually read a review but i know you do I know you, i'm sorry they've you write them but no i mean i i I mean, I still go on Pitchfork and, and like, I tend to go and see what metal they're promoting because I know that if they're promoting it, it's it's either great or it's hyped up over... Or it's hip as fuck. Yeah, exactly. Or or it's deaf, heaven. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But... For me, it's the release radar or the artists, like, the bands that I like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I, I get most of my new music from Spotify, to be honest, or just, like pals telling me about it. See, this is the thing though, amidst the white noise effect the democratisation of the internet where Mm -hmm. suddenly you went from having uh, I don't know, a hundred bands to choose from to having a hundred thousand bands to choose from Mm -hmm. it would have been great to have a reliable press to sort of give you some sort of steerage, some yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. you know mm-hmm. direction, just to bring, just to put things under your nose, even if they were just loosely, not in terms of quality, but loosely bracketed. Here's yeah. a publication for this form of music. I do. I go in uh, Metal Injection, and oh, I used to go on a Rock Sound, but the uh, the website's a bit shit now. But like, I I've, I tend to find when I'm looking for metal or heavy music, I look for reviews mm-hmm. because I don't have any other context to find it. Um, Labyrinth used to be quite good. I don't yeah, still around, but yeah. Um, where I, is it? Metal injection? I can't. It's one of the metal ones. Or metal sucks. Maybe. I possibly. But in terms of other music, maybe I just have pals that'll be more into mm. it, and they send me it, or it'll pop up on you like this, so you like this on Spotify and stuff like that. So this is amazingly organic, though, because what you guys are basically describing is that the very thing that afflicted the print press. It's affected online media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, online yeah, press absolutely. Now. But there's, there's, there's something extra to that as well, though, right? Because there's lots of online publications that will only pay people 
depending on how many views their article has had. Therefore, mm-hmm. it behooves them to, to be positive about things and to no. say positive things on social media about no, these or things. Or to be controversial, because it doesn't yeah, always have too. to be uh-huh. excessively positive. It can be excessively negative. But then if, it's, yeah. if it is positive, if it's too negative, then you'll just get fucking... Like, your editor will just put in that. You know well, I mean? the thing is, we're going to actually talk about a couple of reviews that became notorious for their negativity. Mm-hmm. They actually became sort of infamous. Uh, but that, that sort of obsolescence, the gradual process of obsolescence that is now starting to affect those magazines, mm-hmm. as as you say, people no longer even really trust or need the reviews. They simply just go and check it out, which mm-hmm. you would assume to be a good thing, has led to some other interesting new phenomena that you maybe couldn't quite have predicted as that lens of online media increasingly distorts things, one of the things that people have turned to is aggregator sites. And also the Unsung Podcast, of course. (laughs) The Unsung Podcast, um, which is a form of an aggregator site. But um, aggregator sites, and I think the the inevitable end point of that was the hype machine. And Mm -hmm. the hype machine is everything fucking reprehensible and ugly about music journalism, but very convenient. I mean, it's literally a case of whatever it takes to get on the ladder. And once you're on the ladder, the rest is taken care of, you know, and that is just such a weird fucking place to be at, you know. Yeah, I remember using the hype machine in like 2011, 12 to just find tracks that would work in clubs that were like just on the edge of, you know, becoming sort of indie mainstream or Mm -hmm. remixes and stuff like that. And it was like, oh, that's yeah, yeah, this is where the, the DJs are picking up the cool tunes. But it was yeah. I, I used it for about six months, and I was like, oh, actually, it's fucking shit. It's, it's a golden ticket, though. Honestly, like yeah. as soon as a band appears in that, yeah, yeah, they have multiple people just offering them contracts. That's it. That's the yeah. that's the job done. And there's it, it's very very strange. Um, you know, it's interesting. Just you know, before we we wind up this episode, you mentioned metal, and I think going back to Pitchfork, which is you know ultimately the focus of the the, the show. Um, Pitchfork and metal is a is a strange combina- combination. They so. have a funny yeah. reputation for it's, that. It is odd, isn't it? It's yeah. Very odd. So there was a lot of criticism of Pitchfork's coverage or non-coverage of metal, and it led to a, was it a, a column called Show No Mercy. Yeah, yeah which yeah. they basically have a couple of yeah, contributors that it, are. It, well, it was apparently for a long time it was spearheaded with this guy called is it Brandon Stossy. Since two thousand and six, the the column had interviews, blog posts, end of year lists, and things, um, and only recently have other. Contributors started taking part in that. Um, there was actually within a, a review of Leviathan by Mastodon. Uh, the review was written by Isaiah Violante, which I'm guessing is a pen name. Way back in 2004. Within that review itself, there was an interesting sort of reflection that I found um, and it goes like this Sadly for many of us at Pitchfork, our brand of journalism is often reduced to pounding sand and pissing in the wind particularly where metal is involved With metal, so much effort goes into pasteurising the product, congealing an intrinsically harsh and offensive form of expression into G-rated drivel that our wind swallows the sound What results seldom resembles the melodic and thematic content of sometimes brilliant modern metal albums and instead focuses on the critic's unquenchable need for primal screams directed at a genre he or she simply doesn't get mm-hmm. and that within the context of the review that's fucking pretty interesting somebody clearly needed to get that off their chest um but yeah i mean the the history of metal within pitchfork is strange interesting stat uh, discordance axis juhu was their highest ever rated metal album It was 9.3 it got, although interestingly never got their Best New Music Award at that, mm-hmm. at that point. Um, Death Heaven, their Sunbather their album yeah, got a 8.9. Mm-hmm. 
and the best new music album. That's uh, that's when Death Heaven became a thing. Well, right? this is it. I've got right here quintessential pitchfork metal. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. they are the poster child of hipster metal. Yeah. And when people were trying to work out why is Death Heaven hipster metal, it's like because they got because literally they got reviewed in Pitchfork. Yeah. And it got you know in the top ten of the best albums of the year. And that is then also when they started to become fucking hated by true black metalers. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because they didn't because they listened to the record. It's because it was getting picked up in Pitchfork, and it also had a pink album cover. Yeah, they, they actually <laughs> gave uh, Will from the Throne Room's EP Gilded Edge like a really really shit review. Yeah, and they gave the album that came out afterwards a really great review, and they've always given them great reviews ever since because they're kind of part of that whole black gaze movement. Well, yeah. they, they sort of test the water. They sometimes mm. do. You can tell that they they try something, and then they notice that public, you know, doesn't respond to it well. An example of that would be Andrew WK when he yeah. brought out "I Get Wet." They gave it zero point six. <laughs> And they later revised that up to 8.6 Because Andrew WK became a cultural phenomenon It was so silly It was huge And they just didn't get it They didn't Yeah, they were I mean, Pitchfork are earnest in a lot of ways And they try and ironise things But they do it in a very American way Yeah, yeah I mean, I I think the Andrew WK thing Is probably a great example of what I was describing A journalist that wakes up with a hangover Hasn't remembered that their deadline is that day Mm -hmm. And they stick it on And if you listen to Andrew WK for five minutes And were oblivious to the context You'd be like, what the fuck is this? This is nonsense And hungover (laughs) And and, and slammed that out And then it's it's bit them in the ass Because clearly they they, they looked out of touch By by getting it wrong Mm -hmm. And I tell you, another one they got wrong just to finish things here, it's an anger. <laughs> Zero point eight. Zero point eight. And zero point one. You know they do that thing where they where they go back over classic albums, their, their Sunday whatever Sunday reviews, and they gave they obviously gave ten to Ride the Lightning and ten to Master of the Puppets because they're trying to like, just like they gave ten to Born in the USA and to Talking Heads and stuff. They're like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, we better prop prop up our metal credentials by giving those two Metallica records ten out of ten because like we know the difference. Yeah. yeah. Fuck off St. Anger's better than Ride the Lightning <laughs> Which they gave great reviews to um, There's one part One point I want to pick up on About uh, aggregator websites Right I did some maths today On Metacritic um, And they've reviewed About 750 albums This year or the, sorry, <laughs> Mark's got, sitting there Adding up 750 got 700, <laughs> That guy needs a job man <laughs> guess, yeah, Exactly they've, got, they've done about 750 albums this year And um, None of them are red Only about 20 are in yellow Right, which goes to show that the negative review is a thing which probably doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, you know, from a, the data kind of shows that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. stats don't lie. Well, mm-hmm. sometimes they they're skewed. And but I kind of wanted to ta- kind of before we move on to the next part, is kind of wrap this up by saying I think that's actually what's really cool about what we do. Um, is there something cool about what we do? I think so. Like, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I mean, there's three guys sitting in their house. This guy's wearing shorts. I think I mean, you know a lot. A lot of reviews. One of the things that. I think a lot of less talented writers who, who review stuff get into is they don't actually really get into the weeds about what makes something good. You know, they're, they're more talking about what they hear as opposed to the, the feelings and, and the impression that leaves upon you, right? Um, uh, to be fair, we've actually pulled each other up on that behind the scenes here. We said, you know, when we're going through the albums themselves, we've criticised their own style at times, saying, you know, what's the point in us just repeating what this sounds like? Mm-hmm. People yeah. can hear it. We need to we need to discuss a bit more about what it evokes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like that fucking Guardian film critic Peter Bradshaw. Yeah, and he just. 90% of his review is just recap. listing the fucking plot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, well, that's fine. I'll just go and see the film if I want to hear the <laughs> plot. I want to understand why it's good. Yeah, doing the research this week, we kind of reflect upon what, what, what it is this, this podcast actually is. And here's some words that I wrote, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Here we go. So I think, I think we're, we're quite good because we can actually be a lot more targeted about our criticism. You know, I, well, we can share the things we love about records just as much as we can share the things we, re- we hate about them. But we can also expand on them, even if we like eviscerate an artist. It's done in a thoughtful way. 
a lot of the stuff that's in old print magazines and early online is like shock culture and reviews around bad faith arguments is simply just slagging off bands without an actual critique on the music. I would never do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care what Biffy Clyro's manager <laughs> says. <laughs> and I think I think a lot of that's got to do with social media and how, how that can shape careers and, and, and that's what leads into this idea of why there's no more negative reviews anymore because whether you're an artist or a writer, you want people to read what you're doing and the best way of doing that is to be happy because there's so much negativity online. So I think critique in and of itself is a dying art form when it comes to music journalism on the whole. Um, Do you think we could have all got jobs through this if we just uh, hyped bands up all the time? I think if I was, that's one of the things I've actually, I've actually done here is like, we'd probably get a lot more views if we did Appetite for Destruction, right? But can we add anything meaningful to that discourse, whether positive or negative? You could switch it off. You know, like, like, <laughs> like I knew we were going to say that, you know. And I was going to say, would it even be fulfilling for us to try that? Would it even be fulfilling for us to do Update for Destruction for you to slag it and for Dave to say he loves it? I'd feel brilliant. But I mean, yeah, you know, the thing is, I think personally, I tend to criticise the machine. Sometimes mm. that does require criticising the product because the product is a product of the machine and like, or its success is a product of the machine. I fucking hate the mechanisms that create those false consensuses, those emperor's new clothes, fads, like that is what I despise. You know, a bad record is just a bad record. I've made bad records. I'll mm-hmm. probably continue to make bad records. <laughs> and lots of bands that I quite like make bad records. Mm-hmm. But I think the the mechanisms, the machinations, the the world that goes on, the kind of corporate financial interests, all that that's the shit that is it's just ripe for a takedown and I don't think you could write honestly about it if you don't address that if you're just trying to be ceaselessly positive I mean it's different like as you said with Detour where you're sort of doing more promotional stuff and and you're tending to just try and shine a light on stuff that's good that's different but if you're paid to talk objectively or if you're if you're a trusted to talk objectively about music and you you refuse to acknowledge the things that make it hard to do that or that make it hard for good bands to succeed because that's ultimately it like there are not unlimited spaces at the table you know the bands that we know deserve more attention the very reason we do this are often kept from that attention such as in the case of the sound by quite probably slightly inferior bands but Mm -hmm. bands that were more willing to do jump through certain hoops or had a bit of luck or whatever and that system that enables that lack of meritocracy that's rife for critique Mm -hmm. and so yeah I mean I think in that sense if you're going to do it, you have to do it honestly. You know, if you're going to be one of these publications, you have to be one of these publications honestly because you can't just fucking laud praise on fucking Taylor Swift because you found somebody in your staff that likes it and not acknowledge the fact that her very existence keeps scores of other bands out of the limelight and off the pages of magazines when that could be used for covering, well, frankly, more genuine art. You know, and I, that, yeah, so it would be irresponsible to do otherwise. Like Dave said uh, earlier on, or I kind of paraphrasing a little bit, there's only poverty in honesty. You know what I mean? There's there is no there's no riches in honesty, There's especially in this flat. Game. Fucking right. hell! <laughs> <laughs> but well, we'll, we continue, and uh, I guess it's kind of a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why don't we finish off uh, part one of this? Uh, yeah, well, f- you know, we just we we threw a few names out there that have got some shockingly high and shockingly low scores. Mm-hmm. About the start of part two, we. Uh, Cut some folk down to size. Some some high rollers. We uh, we'll come back and we'll fucking lunch rocks at them. Yeah, sounds good. Cool. Pitchfork, you've been too generous, and I think that's because you're trying to be cool. But it also might just be because you're just really nice, <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to spoil that for you. <laughs> See you then. Bye bye. <laughs>